listeners, and welcome back to EMIGCAST, your source for emergency medicine ideas, information, and inspiration for medical students. My name is Lavinia Turian. I am a second-year medical student at Oregon Health and Sciences University. Today's topic will be focused on what it is like practicing medicine on a reservation, specifically the Navajo Area Indian Health Services in Chenille, Arizona. The Indian Health Services sees over 244,000 American Indians, with the Navajo Reservation being one of the largest, with a more unique patient population than similar rural areas. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Marty Smilkstein, an EM physician. Dr. Smilkstein is currently a clinical associate professor of emergency medicine at OHSU and a senior research associate at the VA in Portland. He has served as the QI consultant of the Chenille Comprehensive Healthcare Center in Arizona of the Navajo Nation, as well as the medical director of Oregon Poison Center. I would like to extend a huge thank you to Dr. Smilkstein for being willing to come out and talk about what it is like working on a reservation, along with some of the challenges he has faced and how students can get more involved. Thank you, Marnie, for being here with us. Uh, I was hoping you can start off by introducing yourself and talking a little more about your background, including your education and training, and how, to, how you came to be where you are now. Wow, okay. That'll kill all three hours of your broadcast. But I'm Marty Smilkstein. I'm an emergency physician by training. Um, back in the previous century, uh, did my residency at uh, Harbor down in Southern California, one of the large L.A. County hospitals. Uh, did a couple of residencies there, then uh, did a medical toxicology fellowship in Denver, and that became my kind of academic subspecialty in emergency medicine. Um, from there, I went to New York City for a couple of years, worked as an attending at uh, Bellevue Hospital in New York City and uh, NYU Medical Center and then ran their medical toxicology fellowship program for two years. Uh, Then skedaddled back west, back to Denver for a couple of years. Uh, And then a position opened up here at OHSU to be medical director of the Poison Center and to direct the uh, medical toxicology fellowship program here. So I came here in 1991 and have been here ever since. was on the faculty in emergency medicine, kind of regularly practicing and teaching into the early 2000s, uh, and then kind of drifted out of that um, to a much more part-time role, um, and then got into some strange things. In 2002, uh, decided to go overseas and work with uh, Doctors Without Borders, MSF, uh, did a mission in Sierra Leone in West Africa, uh, which... Uh, changed my way of thinking about what I wanted to do in the for the rest of my time. And so I returned from that. I shifted from clinical practice into more of a research role, um, trying to take some of the pharmacology and toxicology uh, knowledge that I had and translate that into uh, anti-malarial drug development. So I was lucky enough to land in a anti-malarial drug discovery lab here in Portland that I've continued to work on there since early 2000s. Um, And then after a few years of just doing that, I wanted to get back into clinical practice more and and specifically wanted to work and get back into working in some uh, underserved areas. Um, So after kind of getting myself slowly back up to speed, managed to land a couple of gigs on the Navajo Reservation and served a couple of years as a 
emergency department director in the town of Kayenta, uh, and then later on worked as a uh, emergency physician and quality improvement consultant, I guess would be my title, uh, at the Chin Lee Hospital, also in the Navajo area. So those are all my, those are all my things. <laughs> uh, and how, how I got to be there, is uh, that's a much deeper question, but uh, we'll get to some of that, I guess. The big thing that comes up is when people decide where to practice, typically the two main options are urban, more academic settings versus rural, small communities. And although the Navajo Reservation is considered rural, I feel like it's a very niche sub-type of rural. And I was wondering how you came to practice there as opposed to just a rural place. Yes, some of that may be... Boy, some of that is the time in that, and by that I mean the, the, the kind of populations that I most enjoy serving, or I feel most in ho- at home in, are kind of uh, our underserved areas and high acuity, places where there's great need and not a lot of staff to help. Um, and I think it, it used to be easier to find some of those kind of settings in urban settings and maybe a little bit harder now. Uh, but the uh, Indian Health Service hospitals remain uh, a hugely underserved, uh, high acuity, very challenging, very interesting place to work. And they've kind of been on my radar for a long time. I did some volunteer work out there a long time before I started working uh, in the Navajo area. And just always been interested because it's a place where... Um, I mean, not to be too dramatic about it, but it's a place where you sort of never question whether there's value in being there. You never finish a shift and say, well, you know, what did I actually do today? Uh, there's just so much need and uh, not enough resources to go around. So it just makes it a really uh, appealing place to work for me, uh, not for everyone. Um, and it's just a, a, the Navajo area in itself was just a place I knew about, the Indian Health Service as a whole. I've uh, been aware of for a long time, but I particularly like the Navajo area for other reasons, recreational and sort of some historical. Um, so when I kind of decided to get back into practice and was looking for a place where I could kind of plop myself down quickly and uh, have a role that I thought was of some value, um, to me it was not sort of a in a large urban setting where there's lots of physicians kind of competing for those jobs, it just seemed more appropriate and more interesting to me to go out there where there's uh, not enough doctors to go around, basically. So, um, and it is very different than other rural settings. Um, kind of the nature of the the nature of the reservations they tend to be very spread out, uh, hugely diverse populations. So you have clusters of people in the towns where the hospitals are, and those people probably present, you know, for the most part, the way people would in any small town. But then you have this very spread out area where you have a significant proportion of people living totally off the grid in you know, hogans with no running water, no electricity, et cetera. And for them, it may be a huge undertaking to try to get into town for care. Um, So people tend to present later with medical conditions because it's much harder to get in. Um, They tend to present with a lot of complicated things because uh, there's unfortunately super high incidence of diabetes 
alcoholism, obesity, etc. on on almost all the reservations. So you have a lot of the everything's kind of uh, there's an uptick in complexity and acuity to things. There's a lot of bad behavior going out there in terms of alcohol, drugs, um, interpersonal violence. Uh, so there's a, kind of a disproportionate amount of that kind of thing. And then all other forms of trauma because people are involved in lots of crazy activities out there, working with large animals, uh, a lot of rodeo stuff, um, motor vehicles where people tend not to wear uh, seat belts. Um, so even though it's a small population, the quantity of complex, serious stuff that comes in is much, much higher than you would see, I think, in the city or certainly in other uh, rural settings. So it's really different from that standpoint. So it must be difficult because you just have, I'm assuming there are not too many emergency physicians on staff at a time. And then here, when a trauma comes in, you have trauma surgery, ortho, anyone else who may have a role, and how, when a trauma comes in on the reservation, what is your role compared to how it might be here with yeah. everyone else on staff? Yeah, you, uh, you hit the nail on the head there um, because most, uh, it certainly varies with the size of the place, but most of the places I worked were single coverage, so one physician at a time. Perhaps there was a second one on board if it was change or shift. Through some hours of the day, you'd, you would have a physician assistant present for backup, but um, that's pretty much it. And so if a trauma comes in, it's really all yours. Um, uh, You basically dictate all of the management and assigning roles uh, and everything else and procedures. Depending on the scale and the type, et cetera, there are, and again, depending where you are, there may be resources. So for example, at the first place I worked, there really were no other resources. That was it would be just you, and that's it, because it was a very unique, it was a freestanding emergency room with no attached hospital, so there weren't any other acute care physicians around that you could call. You could call other people from the clinic, et cetera, and they would be uh, bodies to help for sure, and they were immensely helpful, but they wouldn't have regular training or experience in some of the stuff you would want done. At Chinley, in contrast, they do have a, you know, they have an inpatient unit, they have an operating room, so there's a surgeon around, they have, uh, you know, obstetricians who can do surgical things, they have an anesthesiologist much of the day, so there there was a little bit more, and you could call in uh, whatever resources were available, and in really bad cases, which uh, did happen all too often, then you can kind of do an all-hands-on-deck thing where people just come from all over the hospital, and um, you pretty much get everybody and then just do the best you can uh, but it is quite different because it's it, it's you are the top person really in terms of all stages of acute management um, so there isn't anyone to back you up really um, for the most part and so that can get depending on your point of view either really hairy or uh, maybe exactly what you want um, so I think that's a that's a, a statement that distinguishes um, busy hospitals on the reservation from other rural settings is that I think that if you talk about the scope of things you learn in emergency medicine residency, for example, where you kind of learn everything to the max, uh, most places you go out and you don't use many of those skills for the rest of your life, uh, or very rarely, uh, whereas uh, in a place like Chin Lee, uh, you do. 
because you handle you know all the pediatrics you handle all the trauma you handle whatever comes in um, and uh, so in terms of if you want to sort of keep your skills up across the whole breadth of emergency medicine I can't think of a better place to work um, but it does get it does get very hairy so oh, I bet so kind of going off of that when patients do come in, do you ever see the lack of resources pop up a lot, whether that be maybe you don't have all the imaging that you need or the labs that you would want to order, and how do you go about doing that? Do you really rely on the physical exam at that point or kind of hope for the best? Yeah, it's not, and you, of course, can't, it's not a monolith, so it's very different from place to place. Uh, again, just to contrast sort of scope of um some of the differences um and I, th- I think things have changed at kanta but when i worked there there was no ct scanner at all um and there was a lot of people getting hit on the head and a lot of people coming with altered mental status so if you think about the challenge of managing those people without a ct scanner um and you don't have a hospital so that means that every and so no no opportunity to observe people so everyone that comes in with altered mental status and a bonk on the head ends up getting flown out to a facility where they do have those things. And at that point, then quite often they've sobered up and they're fine and they have to then come back. So hugely inefficient, um, complicated thing, but um, hard. it's hard to use uh, clinical judgment alone with something like head injury and altered mental status. I mean, you're really you're, you're taking chances there. Uh, in Chin Li, the resources are much better, but still, they you can find at every stage of the game um, a big difference from what you would say experience here. So in the pre-hospital care setting, for example, um, very few, less paramedics, uh, less highly skilled, highly trained paramedics. So very little uh, in terms of airway management or pre-hospital things, some of the things that we take for granted here. A lot of those don't happen, so people hit the door uh, less stabilized quite often um, than they would here. So you're sometimes working from behind. Um, the I think I'm trying to say this so that it makes sense. The one of the greatest differences between a rural setting um, and a large urban setting is that the staff primarily the nursing, if they're used to dealing with high-acuity things uh, day after day and you have a stable staff, then that team gets pretty good. Everybody knows what the other ones can do, uh, and you can sort of count on them to do things either without being told or with just the slightest instruction. Whereas uh, in a small rural setting, um, people may not have encountered that sort of acuity regularly. Uh, you have to direct a lot more. Uh, you you can't and you can't anticipate that people are just going to know how to do things, um, so it's much more complex. Now on on the reservation or a place like Chin Lee, you would think uh, because of the acuity, everybody would be kind of fully up to speed, but they have their own staffing challenges, as is true in a lot of uh, Indian Health Service hospitals, where they um, it's very hard to get an emergency emergency department fully staffed with a core of nurses that are there permanently and that stay and that want to be there. 
So you have a smattering of nurses who are very experienced and very good and who you know, but then maybe half or more of the staff you're working with may be contract nurses from somewhere else. Some of them, it may be their first day, or maybe they've just been there occasionally. So a lot more variability. So that, to me, is a, is a huge resource, and that's probably the most important resource when you're dealing with really complex issues, is to have a team around you where you kind of know the skills of the people, and you can ask somebody to do something and just know it will be done. And very often that does not exist there, which, which uh, can make it really tough. So there's those kind of resources. In terms of equipment resources, um, pretty variable, but that doesn't tend to be a, a problem. So they're, you know, Chinley has fiber optic airway stuff and everything you need for surgical airways and chest tubes and all that kind of things and all the appropriate pumps for blood and pressures and whatever might be needed. But again, uh, it's a real luxury to be able to, in the midst of some kind of thing, to be able to give an instruction to set up A, B, or C and know that it will be done, right? Uh, if you're dealing with nursing staff that is not doing that on a regular basis, then getting complicated drips, multiple drips, uh, lots of you know drainage things going all at once, um, you know transfusions. So it, you get a lot more chaos than you would have in a place where you have the same staff dealing with the same things on a regular basis. So equipment resources didn't tend to be a problem. The big resource that is uh, lacking, uh, you know, on the reservation, but certainly in any rural place, tends to be subspecialists. Um, they yeah. just obviously can't live there and work there, and so you 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 can't get them. So you can get their opinions on the phone, but you don't have the ability to to get them in quickly. So that's a very important human resource. Um, Medication-wise, not so big a problem. The formularies in most places are pretty good. You may not have your first choice of drug available, but um, or and you may not have a menu of three or four to choose from, but there'll be something that works. So you're not going to say, oh, geez, I don't have an antibiotic that I need, or I don't have the presser that I need. You might have to use something a little different than usual, but you'll have it. So those don't tend to be a problem. Getting imaging, so I guess what I'm saying is the pieces are there, and then what you need, the, the big problem there tends to be the personnel to do the right thing with those pieces. That That's a problem. So um, you need a CT scan, and perhaps the hospital doesn't have the money to have an in-house CT tech. You have to call them in from home. Uh, so you have to wait a half hour for you know, CT tech to get in, set up the machine, that type of thing. So it tends to be those kind of personnel things or in a more resourced hospital, if the CT tech was sick, you know, there'd be a backup. So you wouldn't have a gap in service. Uh, but we certainly encountered times where, for example, could not get ultrasound done because the ultrasound tech was sick or unavailable and there was no backup. Um, and that would be the end of it. That that did not happen at Chinle, but at other places. So, what I'm trying to say is, it's not so much a lack of the right, you know, tubes and equipment and drugs, etc. It's the uh, lack of a consistent team to kind of make all that stuff work. Mm-hmm. And you did mention phoning in physicians, specialists, and how that wasn't always effective. But now with telemedicine really taking off where we have video chat, sending 
photos securely to others. Has that helped at all with patients being seen by a specialist hundreds of miles away? It is, it's helped a lot in some ways. And, and again, I say this with the caveat that uh, it's been some months since I've been down there now, so I don't know what's advanced. But um, it's, you know, I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth because I both love the IHS mission and the kind of people that you help, but I can say I hate the IHS system. You know, so every, every bad bureaucratic thing that happens in the VA or other places happens in the Indian Health Service, but worse. And so um, the point I'm getting at is that you would think there's, there is no better me- setting for telemedicine than a place like the reservation. It's the perfect setup for it. Complex thing, nobody to help, uh, so it's perfect. So you would think that the, you know, it would be a smooth and easy path to get that. But the bureaucratic hurdles to both get the funding for that, um, to... Uh, Basically, it's really hard to implement anything new. So if you, if someone else in the Indian Health Service has set up the particular thing that you want to set up, then it's a little bit easier. You can just copy that, kind of cut and paste it, and somebody may approve it. But the point of all this is it's been hard to get telemedicine to play the role that it should. So at the places I worked, there was telemedicine for psychiatry because um, they had lost their psychiatrist. Um so they could do counseling, which is better than nothing, but it's not really ideal. Uh, there was some telemedicine kind of informal, you know, sending you know, dermatology and other kinds of things. But say for trauma, which is, a, I think, a really powerful future use of telemedicine where you set up something at the foot of the bed and somebody is watching and sort of keeping an eye on, for example, all the things you're failing to notice, uh, nothing like that exists at, at that hospital. I think over time it will because I I think good ideas do eventually come in. And in the long run, they're actually cheaper, right, than cheaper than staffing the hospital as fully as you might want. And so someday those things will be better and they are improving, but they haven't yet got penetration uh, across the whole Indian Health Service for sure. So it's coming and it's helpful, um, but not nearly what it should be. So it's, it's one of those things where the places who have their act together and have lots of personnel available to write the proposals and fill out the forms and that kind of stuff, those people tend to get telemedicine sooner than places like the Indian Health Service where it perhaps is more needed. But that's just my editorial. But it's coming, and it'll be really, uh, really cool and helpful to have that. I mean, they certainly have a teleradiology and some of those more conventional things, but... Um, not really acute patient management things yet. So since it sounds like a lot of physicians come from all over just to do some time there, do you ever find yourself calling some buddies up for consults? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, if they're willing to take the call, um, very much so. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it's not exactly what you're asking, but I'll, I'll sneak in one important thing that I wanted to say for your millions of listeners who are, you know, thinking about this as a career. Um, across the IHS facilities, there are actually very few of them where the emergency department is staffed by uh, IHS, Indian Health Service, employees, full-time people. Mm-hmm. 
There are places, for example, at Kayenta where I was the director, but 100% of the docs that worked there were contract physicians working for locum tenens organizations. There were no staff emergency physicians. Positions were open, but nobody would take them. Uh, at Chin Lee, maybe two or three and a half FTEs are full-time people. All the rest are outside contractors. So, and, and that varies hugely across the country. There are some places that are lucky and, and kind of fully staffed by uh, regular people, but not for the most part. And in that across the country, there's a minority. I don't know what the percentage is now, but maybe a quarter, maybe less of all the docs working in emergency departments at IHS facilities are board certified. So they are uh, often very experienced people, but sometimes not. But uh, there is, by and large, not a requirement for board certification because if there was, they couldn't fill those spots. So we talk about phoning a friend, right? Um, if you work in the city, you've got the luxury of having maybe somebody working with you or change your shift, somebody who's coming on, uh, you know, board certified, really experienced um, and that can certainly happen in uh, IHS hospitals, but it's less consistent, right? So the person that's coming on um, very often will would not be the person that you'd be calling for uh, subspecialty advice. So, yes, I've made informal consults to many people, friends, family, and others, um, and then also formal consultation. Most places, not surprisingly, you end up with either a... a unofficial or official kind of network of consultants, right, by phone, just by habit. There's certain people that you call, mm-hmm. uh, and that exists. Uh, obviously, it's necessary in a place like that. So you can pretty much always get uh, somebody on the phone to help, for sure. Not always quickly, but uh, sometimes. But I think uh, it's not a substitute for being able to do things yourself. So. Right. One thing I'm really curious about is how the Navajo's cultural beliefs play into into the part of you providing care. Um, I know they have certain beliefs about how care should be provided, as well as maybe being around medicine, men, women. Um, how do you integrate that care and not just try to completely yeah. avoid addressing that? For full disclosure, I can admit up front that I think I was terrible at it. I mean, I try, but I think it's terrible. Another, by that, I mean there was so much going on under the surface that I was not aware of. So it was good that I was aware there was a lot of other things going on, but I was not, in, I was not knowledgeable enough to maybe be the most effective. So, uh, for example, what the... You have some people in the community who are strictly um, what the kind of people we might see here in the city and that they they look for Western allopathic medicine, period. That's it. You have people at the other end of the spectrum who are, you know, uh, speak only Navajo, live off the grid on a Hogan, who have seen uh, much favor their own, you know, natural healers only come to the doctor when they don't want to and you know that they've already seen their natural healer and that whatever you do they're also going to go back to see that person so without knowing the details of what goes on those interactions you, you have to be aware of it and try to 
try to give them a treatment plan that you think they're going to follow and that doesn't um, disparage any other approach they might be taking. Um, but I didn't get into, you know, what did the medicine man tell you or what is your plan, kind of leave that to them. Um, and so there's a lot of stuff going on where I wouldn't necessarily know. And you just try to be aware that that's happening, try to make up a treatment plan that doesn't violate anything else that they're doing, that doesn't interfere with any of the... You can sometimes ask them if they're planning to have a ceremony, some of the ceremonies that go on for a long, long time that the uh, healers will prescribe um, because that can sometimes interfere with follow-up or other things. So you can ask about those um, and try to coordinate care so that it doesn't interfere. But that's about as much as I ever got into um, that part of things. I didn't try to get a deep understanding of their kind of traditional processes just tried not to interfere with it um the one that came up most often um well before i get to that the the language issue is huge um you see probably i'm guessing 20 percent might even be a quarter of the patients you would see in a day speak only navajo wow uh and navajo for those of us who are used to just you know english or latin languages is indecipherable uh, it's the reason they used the Navajo code during World War II to, uh, you know, unbreakable code. Right. So you can't listen in and get some idea what's going on. Uh, and like in any other situation where you have to rely on an interpreter, uh, it creates uh, it creates a challenge because you don't ever feel like you're really getting the nuance of what's going on. So there's the language part. The cultural part that I was going to say is that for the old school Navajos, they have a belief that um, if you talk about something, uh, it, it can make it happen, right? So okay. which makes it super difficult to do um, informed consent the way we do it, right? Because you can't say, you know, if we you can't say, I shouldn't say, it's inadvisable to say, you know, if we do this, you know, y- you might have whatever. You might get a pneumothorax. Your lung might pop or whatever. So you have to sort of describe complications and say that this is something that might happen to one, right? Sort of this okay. dis- sort of separate from them, not to suggest that it will happen to them, because for some of them, they, they find that troublesome. And the time it gets really complicated is with end-of-life kind of things, you know, uh, discussions about do not resuscitate and those kinds of things. Um, really hard to have that discussion without you know, talking about someone dying or uh, other kinds of things. So um, that kind of thing, one has to just really look careful, f- carefully for the reactions on their face, try to avoid saying things that are suggestive or negative. Um, that's, so that's the one that came up most commonly. There are other style things which are very, uh, I think, easier to get used to. They uh, consider it rude to make eye contact um, in a lot of cases. Okay. So you're talking to them and they're looking over in the corner. And, you know, here we might think that's a sign that someone is either depressed or blah, 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 blah. But a lot of them just don't, they just don't make eye contact when they talk to you. Um, Again, depends on age, depends on lots of things, depends on how much interaction they have with uh, with the rest of us. 
so certain patterns like that that you can kind of pick up on where they respond differently, may say things differently than someone would hear. Um, but I think those are those are relatively easy to to pick up on, but they are different for sure. Yeah, sounds like there's an adjustment period there. For sure, and yeah, maybe permanent. And again, I never got to be feel like I was an authority. And it, it, there, but there were times where it actually there were people that lost their jobs down there for you know culturally like really bad culturally insensitive things. Um, people that view view it as kind of a touristy kind of voyeur thing. You know, aren't these old Indian oh, women yeah. cute? Let's take a picture with the old Indian lady kind of thing. I mean, just crazy stuff that most sensitive people would not think of doing anyway um, but I think with cultural awareness it's it's always more important to just be it's more important to be sensitive than it is to be aware I mean if you have your choice of the two right even right. if you're a culturally ignoramus if you're watching the other person carefully and you let them know of your concern things go okay even if you do something that technically you shouldn't so so it sounds like there is always a need for more physicians and other healthcare providers on the reservation. Are there ways for students or residents to maybe rotate through or get involved with working in the clinics? There are. I, I don't know whether it's at all facilities. It's not very well advertised. Um, uh, Chin Lee, for example, does have... Uh, Stu- both students and residents coming from actually lots of places around the country, uh, including in the emergency department. Um, the one thing I would say about that by way of advice is, again, talking out of both sides of my mouth, it's like the best place you can go if you want to get experience um, because you will be allowed you will have the chance to, and you'll be allowed to do a lot of things uh, and encounter a lot of challenges that you would not get um, in your local school setting. That's the good side of it, and that's a, that. That's something which should highly recommend the experience. The problem is the other thing that I mentioned is that the physician coverage uh, can be. I'm not saying this to disparage people there. I'm just saying it to give good advice to students and others. The physician coverage can be quite variable in both their their knowledge, uh, their ability to teach, um, and their attitude, you know, frankly. So if you land with the right person, uh, I can say without doubt it, w- it can be a highlight of your entire training experience because uh, it can be fantastic. But... Um, if your schedule is such that you land with the wrong person, then that can go south, right? Um, because people are often very busy and very stressed. They're not always uh, looking f- to spend extra time with students and trainees. Um, so that's the only thing I would say is definitely check it out, um, but definitely investigate how much control you might have when you're there over who you work with. Uh, and do some homework there. Um, so I worked I just to, you know, not to praise or shame anybody in particular, but one of the reasons I ended up at Chin Lee is that the uh, director of the ED at the time I started was a former resident here who I had trained back in like 1991, 92. And he's now been a uh, emergency physician ever since then. And fantastic doctor, fantastic guy great teacher, super generous with his time, uh, patient, you know, kind to his patients. 
Uh, so exactly the kind of person you want to work with. But so you might do a shift with him and then change your shift comes and the next person coming on, maybe not so much. Um, so that's the only caveat I would say. If you, if you can, um, the experience is very much determined by what things bug you, I guess, right? Different things bug us all. Uh, if you work down there, you have to not be bugged by a system that doesn't work very smoothly, right? So you're not going to get some of the, you may have to do more things by yourself. You may not have always friendly, helpful people around to help you. You may have things that don't go well, uh, a lot of forms to fill out, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There may be things that bug some people and other people can kind of let that stuff roll off their back and more enjoy the uh, patient experience and the clinical experience, which is going to be fantastic no matter what. You you can't avoid that. Uh, but you have to be honest with yourself about what kind of what level of teaching and involvement you need for supervision and how much some of the less smooth aspects of the IHS will will, will bother you. Uh, that's sort of the consideration. But I would definitely check it out. Uh, and as I say, there's thing there's rotations for students and for residents, um, depending often in the clinics and family medicine, internal medicine, pediatrics, and then in the emergency department. Um, and again, depending on the facility, you may have a full range of things. There may be you may be surgical experience, obstetrics. Uh, some places have ICUs, some don't. Um, so check it out. But I would say from my experience from teaching and, and keeping an eye on students, the most important thing is to really pay attention to who you're going to work with more than the place itself, because uh, that will color your experience. Right. And have you personally had any experience working with students or residents on the reservation? I have. Yeah, I haven't. I was in the lucky position of not being the one in charge which is nice. So uh, other people I worked with were officially assigned to supervise them. But there were students um, students in the emergency department and Chin Lee, a good proportion of the time I was there. Um, they also have a, a lot of the IHS facilities have some really interesting ongoing training programs. Uh, for example, Chin Lee uh, is one of the places where all of the special forces soldiers who are coming through, they all need to learn uh, their medics and even some of the other ones, they teach them a surprising amount of uh, acute care medicine. So they learn intubation, they learn all these kind of things. So there's almost always a uh, special forces medic in training there. Um, so that was that was a more common thing than a medical student. But there was medical students maybe, I don't know, 10% of the time that I was there. Depends on the time of year, depends on who they're making contact with. Um, so when the fellow I mentioned before was in charge, there was quite often students and he's no longer in charge and there's less students now, but uh, that could change. All right. That's all the time we have for today. I just wanted to say one last thank you to Dr. Smokestein, an emergency medicine physician for talking about some of his experiences working on the reservation along with its unique patient population and for discussing a potential way for students to get more involved.